When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. Welcome to the Wealth Ability Show, where we're always discovering how to make way more money and pay way less taxes. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of Wealth Ability. So we have in Congress right now the Build Back Better plan, or at least that's the title of it, given by the Democrats. Um, this supposedly three and a half trillion, some say it's five trillion dollar bill. And the question is that I have is, first of all, will it work? And second of all, why do we have it in the first place? So what's what's behind all this? And we are really super fortunate today to have Dr. James Otteson. Uh, Jim is a uh, the author of Seven Deadly Economic Sins. He is an expert in the field of uh, business ethics. And uh, uh, Jim, it is just great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Tom. It's my pleasure to be with you. So if you could just give us a little bit about your background and your expertise. Sure. So I, as you mentioned, I teach business ethics. I'm at the University of Notre Dame. I teach business ethics. My training, my graduate training is actually in philosophy, uh, not in business. Um, I came to an appreciation and uh, to the study of economics because I wrote my dissertation on uh, Adam Smith's moral theory. So Adam Smith, who's often credited with being the founder of the discipline of economics, he also wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. So I uh, became very interested in his, in his moral theory, which led me to become interested in his economics and other economic theory that came out of the 18th century. Um, and now I teach uh, business ethics where um, I try to apply some of the, a little bit more of a historical context when people are worried about contemporary issues. A, a lot of things that arise now are not, nothing new under the sun. They've arisen before. Um, and so we try to um, expand the historical horizon a little bit and also bring a little philosophy to bear in trying to deal with some of the contemporary issues in uh, business ethics. I, I love it. So we, uh, WealthAbility, we kind of operate from the standpoint that all tax law um, really revolves around incentives of one type or another, right? There's, there's, I mean, there's just not that much of the tax law that raises revenue. Most of it is an incentive. So in this new bill, we have child tax credits, which, you know, if you look at the incentive, that's an incentive to have more children, right? Um, that is, uh, that's the way I look at it. I'm going, that's an incentive to have more children. We have, we have incentives for renewable energy. I have to get away from clean energy because <laughs> to me, that's not so clear that it's clean, but it is renewable. Okay, so renewable energy, solar, um, charging stations for electric cars. We have, um, we have uh, low-income housing credits. Um, so we have those incentives. Um, we have uh, some disincentives. We have higher capital gains rates. We have higher corporate tax rates. We have um, higher personal tax rates, which really are just anti-incentives, right? They're just disincentives. 
And so when you look at all of these, will it work? Will this, I, I'm gonna be completely, try to be completely fair here. Will this build back better? Um, does it work to tax the rich um, and, and the rich being anybody makes four, over 400,000, right? That's, that's who presumably the rich is. Um, they're including corporations in that, which is uh, not so sure about that, but let's say that they include that, that includes the rich. Does, does that work? And, it, and, and then we'll talk about, is there a need for it? And then we'll talk about, okay, why are we doing it in the first place? So let's start with, do you think that this will work to A, stimulate the economy and B, um, reallocate income? Uh, well, I was about to ask you, so it's a great question. It's a big question, obviously, but I was about to say uh, work at what? It depends on what your definition of work is and what, the, what you think the goal of the legislation really is. Um, one of the mistakes that I think a lot of legislation makes is that, I mean, you brought up incentives, um, which implies that human beings respond to incentives. Um, but the critical piece of that is not only do they respond to incentives, but they also respond in ways that are a bit unpredictable. Human beings, for better or worse, um, they are unpredictable. They make choices that aren't always exactly what we would like them to make. And I think one of the mistakes that a lot of legislation makes is that human beings are relatively static. In other words, you can make some kind of change to the policy or legislation and nothing else will change. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of the forecasts and a lot of the cost-benefit analyses that people tried to make you know, when they're scoring legislation assumes that nothing will change. Everybody will engage in exactly the same behavior they were engaging in before. Um, and so, you know, if we if, if we raise taxes by 10%, well, we just look at whatever the pot of money was before we would increase the tax rate. We just take 10% of that and we say, oh, that's the new revenue. We're going to have 10% of that. Which, which that would be the argument that the tax foundation would make to use dynamic scoring, right? Right. Where you actually have to look at behavioral changes. And, and people do change their behaviors. Um, and so, that will automatically mean that whatever we would actually, whatever would actually happen, what would eventuate after the passage of this legislation, won't be what we would have expected. So that doesn't mean it's better or worse necessarily, but it will certainly be different. Um, but I would add one other thing. Um, so one of the, you know, you mentioned my book Seven Deadly Economic Sins. So one of the sins that I talk about in that book is the idea that good is good enough. That's what I call it. It's a good is good enough fallacy. And what I mean by that is that if somebody shows or argues that there's some kind of benefit that would come about, say, from a policy change, we change this policy, here's the benefit I think um, we could get from it. Um, if we have child tax credit, well, here's the number of people that would be benefited by it. That would include not only parents, maybe, but also child care providers and maybe a range of other people. We point out all of that benefit. And let's suppose just for the sake of argument, and if, if you'll allow me, Tom, just for the sake yeah, of argument. Absolutely. We'll just stipulate that all of those benefits actually would ensue, that you would really get those. Well, usually the analysis stops right there and says, well, if, if there's benefit, then therefore we should do it. And what I would argue is that, no, that's not good enough yet. So the fact that it would lead to some benefit is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Because what you need to show is that not only would it lead to a good benefit, but that it would be better than whatever else those resources would otherwise have been expended on. You know, we, we live in a world of limited resources. So any amount of resources we put in one direction is resources we cannot put in other directions. Um, and I'll just give you one quick anecdote. A few years ago, one of my sons uh, made an argument, he actually made a presentation to me that uh, we should buy a Ferrari. 
Um, and, you know, he's a teenage son, so you can imagine, you know, what, what kinds of good things he thought would happen if we bought a Ferrari. Sure. After the end of it, he said, you know, the, the conclusion of his presentation was, therefore, we should buy a Ferrari. Um, and I said, well, okay, you know, even if all of those good things you list actually would happen, there are a few other things that you might want to reckon into the uh, calculation, like maybe we'd have to give up our house, <laughs> you know, or, or maybe I wouldn't be able to send my kids to college or something. Um, and that's the element that's often missing from talk of uh, legislation. So we, we talk about the, the benefits or the putative, what we, the aspirational benefits, but there's never really a, a good faith accounting or a good faith estimate of what are we giving up in order to get this. And you know, that bill, if it's $3.5 trillion, if that's the number, that's about $10,000 for every man, woman, and child in America. So that means in order to justify that, I would say you have to show that whatever benefit you think that bill is going to create is greater than the benefit that you that all of those people would have gotten if they had just gotten to keep $10,000 or say, you know, a family of four, $40,000. What would they have done with that money? Um, would they have chosen to put it towards these, um, these, whatever the goals are in the bill? I think that's the real question. And that's a very hard question to answer. And it's often just left out of the discussion. Yeah, that's interesting. So let, let's talk about what the bill does. So, and I, I want to run a theory by you, see what you okay. think. Okay. okay. So if you, you've got a lot of money that is coming from higher income people and it's going to lower income people. That there's, there's a massive wealth transfer intended in this bill. The people who have the money um, that are being taxed typically use that money to invest in the economy, in energy, in other things, um, in jobs, right? Where the people who uh, don't have the money, when you transfer it, typically what they're gonna use it for, and this is actually one of the arguments of the Democrats proposing this is, look, this will stimulate the economy because they will immediately spend it, which I think is probably true. Um, they will spend it, what will they spend it on? Well, they'll, <laughs> The money will actually be, it's really a transfer from the people making $500,000 to the people who own Walmart stock and the people who own Amazon stock, because that's where they're going to spend it. So the money doesn't end up in the pockets in the, in the end, it does not end up in the pockets of the people you're giving it to. It ends up in the pockets of the people that get the money that they spent. What do you think? Yeah, I see. I see your point about that. Um, you know, these are not. These are not. This is not a zero sum world. I mean, I, I think that's also partly what people tend to think. You know, when they're when you're asking people, should we transfer wealth? So we, you know, why should we be worried about the fact that in the United States you have such a wide disparity of wealth um, in a place like the United States? Well, many people assume or they think. I think what their assumption is that there's a relatively fixed amount of wealth. Um, and, you know, if one person becomes a billionaire, it can only have happened at the expense of other people. So there's probably some element either of injustice or unfairness, something bad that went, that, uh, went on. We need yeah, to Yeah, so basically that. a zero-sum game. It's a zero-sum game. And I think that's a very pervasive view about the economic world. You know, maybe people don't articulate it quite that way, but I think that's an assumption that many people have. Um, and I think what you're pointing, uh, pointing out or putting your finger on is that well, you know, when, when wealth is flowing, um, it doesn't usually stop in one place, it goes in various places. And so, you know, if it turned out that the real beneficiaries of something like this kind of transfer were 
um, as you say, shareholders in places like Walmart. I mean, that may, that may well be the case. That's certainly not the intended audience or the intended beneficiary. Um, and I think if that were pointed out, then maybe we would have a different view. But, I, but my guess is, and I'll ask this to you, maybe I'll put the question back to you. Suppose we brought, suppose we made, you made that case and people said, oh, okay, yeah, that's not what we want. That's not what we meant. We wanted something different. We want the beneficiaries actually to be the poorest people in the United States. Do you think then they would say, okay, well, let's not engage in wealth redistribution. Let's do something else. What, I mean, or would they instead make the argument or maybe entertain the idea, which I think maybe is your idea that, well, um, remember that Jeff Bezos and, the, and Walmart, you know, these, these people are actually creating more wealth. They're not just redistributing wealth. And so the more capital they have at their, uh, at their disposal, the more jobs and value and benefits, goods and services that are created to improve everybody's lives. Well, th there's that point for sure. You know, the other interesting um, aspect of this, so, so the other interesting aspect of this is this is not a redistribution of, well, well, I would argue it is a redistribution of wealth, but it's a redistribution from the higher middle income to the very wealthy. That's where it's being redistributed. It's not being redistributed to the poor and middle class because they will spend it, okay? They won't invest it because they don't have the education, okay? So if you really wanted to, if you really wanted income equality, you'd have education equality. And what I think what we're missing in this country is education equality. That we do not have educational equality in this country and giving people free uh, community college does not make for education equality. Uh, in fact, it does nothing. It's two more years of high school, right? Where, where if we had real education, real financial education, for example, which we don't have practically any financial education in the schools, um, then maybe we would have, you know, some less income inequality. Um, and that's really, if you wanted to re, if you wanted more equalization, it would be an education equality, not, uh, not, not just income, because income doesn't create wealth, right? It's the use of the income that creates the wealth. It's not the income itself that creates wealth. We, we all know people who make $500,000 a year and are poor. They're still living hand to mouth. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Right, because they spend every dollar they get. And every time they get a raise, they actually spend more money. They, they never actually build wealth. So, you know, if you're talking about a wealth disparity versus an income disparity, you know, those are two different questions, frankly. Oh, they, yeah, they, they, they certainly are. And, and um, you know, when we talk about income inequality, you know, people argue for various measures to equalize incomes or to raise taxes. We have a very progressive system of, tax, um, of taxes on income. What we don't have in the United States is a wealth tax. Now, that is something that a couple of people in, uh, in Congress have talked about is a wealth tax, um, but that points to exactly what you're suggesting, which is that you know, the wealthiest Americans tend to have very little income, taxable income. That's not what they're, you know, they, they may show a very small income. I think Bezos shows a small income, Warren Buffett shows a small income because what they have is something entirely different that even if you raised income taxes, it wouldn't touch what they're doing. 
Yeah, but but I would argue that even if you had a wealth tax, you, it still ends up back to them, because what yeah, do you no, do with that money? Point. It's still going to people who are not educated in finance and how to invest. And so, what the money ends up doing is it going goes back to <laughs> Geico, Warren Buffett, um, Amazon, and uh, and Walmart, Google, etc. So it's still going back to the wealthy. Yeah, so no, I understand. Yeah. It, yeah, I, it, it may increase. It's, it's a little like giving a kid a candy bar. You're hungry, so I'm going to give you a candy bar, and that candy bar is going to satisfy your hunger for five minutes. But it's not going to satisfy your hunger for tomorrow, okay? Which is the challenge I have with this whole idea, because when we can't truly redistribute wealth unless we redistribute education. So, so let me ask you the, the, the question then. Okay, so why? What do you think is behind this? Is it is it really this purity and this ignorance of what's going on? Or is there something, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. People reach for the conspiracy theories. I, I know people that are very smart people that they're all into conspiracy theories. I'm going, okay, so they're in, they've got to be in conspiracy theories because they can't make sense of it. So can you help us make sense of you know why why this leaning towards socialism and away from capitalism? How do you, how do you make sense of that? Yeah, that, um, so that's a complex question. I think there's more than one thing going on. Um, you know, first think about younger people, so millennials and younger in the United States. So millennials down to you know maybe current college students or high school students. I think for many of them, they don't really have a good definition in their minds or a good concept in their minds of what socialism or capitalism are. They don't, they don't know what they really are. So, um, and maybe that goes back to your point about education, but you know, if you ask those groups of people, tell me what socialism and capitalism are, they'll say things like, well, capitalism is where everybody's out for himself and doesn't care about anybody else and is happy to stab anybody else in the back to benefit himself. That's what capitalism is. What's socialism? Socialism is where we care about people, including people who need help. Okay, well, if those are your two definitions, well, then if somebody says, which do you prefer, that seems pretty clear. But I also think that there's um, a little bit, el a slightly different way that you might be able to frame this. And I think um, part of the question is whether it's possible for business and business people, people engaged in business in a market economy or a commercial society, can business be what I would call honorable. Um, and let me give you one example. You've probably heard the phrase that uh, businesses or business people should give back to society. Um, so we hear that a lot. Well, I mean, I don't know if you've ever given any thought to that phrase, but you know, think about what it means to say you need to give back. I mean, notice we don't say that business needs to give, but give back. You know, so that means that, they, that that assumes they took in the first that place. That assumes they did something wrong that they need to atone for now by giving back. It's like a sin. You, 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 yeah, you because, need to because creating Amazon and this ability to order online during the pandemic was no gift at all. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But I, but I think I think in all honesty, I think many people think that the only way you can become a Jeff Bezos or you know, pick whoever you want as a super wealthy person, the only way that's possible is by having engaged in wrongdoing somewhere somewhere along the line. Maybe we don't know exactly what you did wrong, but we're sure you did something wrong. Um, and that's why you need to give back. Um, and you know, my suggestion would be, well, um, you know, is there some way we can imagine engaging in business such that it's actually valuable in itself, not just you know, for giving to charity afterwards or something, but the activity of business itself. 
And I think there, there clearly is, and there has to be, if we bring it back down to the level of, you know, when you go into the store and you buy something from somebody from, uh, from the clerk and you give their mo the money, you give $5 to the barista, the barista gives you the coffee, which one of you benefited from that transaction? The answer is both of you did, um, because if either one of you didn't benefit, you would have said no. And those kinds of trans, and that's, by the way, reflected in the fact that you both say thank you to each other, but those kinds of transactions repeated millions and billions of times, those are the, the mutually beneficial, mutually voluntary and mutually beneficial transactions that incrementally raise um, overall levels of prosperity. So to come back to where, where we started, um, people are worried about inequality. And I think they're worried about inequality because they think that inequality arises only from injustice or from um, some lack of fairness somewhere along the way. But we might be able to say, look, if, if a lot, maybe many, maybe even most business transactions are mutually beneficial, then maybe what we should really say we want is just improving human conditions. So in other words, if everybody's situation is getting better, maybe not all at the exact same rate or the, to the same level, that's true, but we want improving conditions, um, then maybe that would lessen the worry about inequality itself and allow us to focus on things like, well, how actually in absolute terms um, are the lives of even the people we, um, we officially designate as poor? Is it, are they getting better? Are they getting material better? Are, they, um, are the goods and services that they're able to consume and use, are those increasing in, in variety and scope and depth? Um, and those are answers I think we can, uh, we can actually, those are questions we can actually get empirical answers to. Hey, if you like financial education the way I do, you're going to love Buck Joffrey's podcast. Buck's a friend of mine, he's a client of mine, he's a former board certified surgeon, and he's turned into a real estate professional. So he has this podcast that is geared towards high paid professionals. That's who he's geared towards. So if you're a high paid professional, you're going, look, I'd like to do something different with my money than what I'm doing. I'd like to get financially educated. I'd like to take control of my money and my life and my taxes. I would love to recommend Buck Joffrey's podcast, which is called Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. I hope you join Buck on this adventure of a lifetime. So let me go to back to something you said. You said, okay, so millennials, Gen Zers, they maybe have a distorted view of what socialism and capitalism are, okay? And I, that's my experience too, okay? The, the education is perhaps not what I would like to see in that area, but certainly that doesn't hold true for Bernie Sanders, who is, oh. our, who is our head socialist, right? Bernie Sanders, okay, I can, I can give AOC a pass because she's in that millennial group, that's fine. But Bernie Sanders, you can't give him a pass because he grew up in the Soviet era. He grew up uh, uh, where Mao Zedong was, was uh, the leader of China. So he grew up among socialism, communism, socialism. So how do you, ex what, what's he after? What, what do you think is behind that? Yeah, that's a good question. And you know, I don't know him personally, um, so I can't, you know, it's hard for me to, uh, to uh, look into his soul and see what's going on inside it. But, um, but what I can say is I can speculate a little bit um, based on what I've heard from him. And, and, and just so you know, I like Bernie Sanders because I think he believes what he says. Yeah, no, I think he does too. And that I think is important. So 
um, you know, what, what actually is motivating him? I think maybe a couple of things. On the one hand, I think it's there, there is a very strong attraction to the idea of all of us being in it together. Um, you know, we want to rise or fall together as a group uh, with a kind of unity, a deep um, community where um, we take the common good seriously. And, you know, um, and if the, the community succeeds, then all of us are succeeding as opposed to some of us more than others. Um, and I think because of that strong attraction to this notion of a unity, we're all in this together, that looks very different from what you get under the self-interested individualistic capitalism. Under capitalism, that looks like, well, we're really all in it for ourselves. Um, and, and if you look at a commercial society, what do you see? You see lots of different people pursuing lots of different life paths, lots of different preferences they have and choices they make, but we're not all making the same choices. We're not all making the same, we don't all have the same preferences. We're not all, not all pointing in the same direction. And I think and for a lot of a people, point. that lack of unity is, um, is unattractive. to them. And yet, Jim, you make a, a really good, you made a really good point earlier, which is there is no business without customers. So <laughs> what that means is there's a willing buyer and a willing seller. Right. And, and if there were not a fair exchange, there would be no exchange and you would be out of business. We, we see that over and over again. You know, a restaurant, for example, loses their chef and all of a sudden they have no customers. OK. Um, or they, they don't treat people well. So, you know, business doesn't treat people, their customers well. They don't yeah. have any customers. So there has to be that exchange and people have to be say, yeah, I like doing business here. Uh, it's interesting to me that that you, you know, you talk about millennials and going, millennials are the reason Amazon works, okay? They are the primary users of Amazon. And it, it's, I'm sorry, it's not, I'm, I'm a hey boomer. And it's, it's, not, it's not the hey boomers that are the primary users of, of Amazon, okay? Yeah, We're more so likely to go down to Main Street, yeah, right? Yeah. And so, so it's, it's just fascinating to me that we have this discussion and, and the, what I like to, to kind of finish up with is we have this discussion now about the rich are bad and, and, and we need to do something about that. And for the, the one that kind of gets me is of course, I, I just did a town hall on this new, um, on this new bill. And you know, in, in this new bill, there's this, this whole idea behind, a lot of the idea behind it is we need to tax the rich because they're cheating, yeah. right? Well, I mean, I happen to know and all CPAs know that it's not the rich who are cheating, it's the middle class who cheat. Um, and and that, is, that is borne out by data, okay? And the IRS knows that. Well, the IRS just wants more money. So I can't blame them for that. That's their job is to you know, build their empire. I get that. That's what bureaucracy does. Um, but, but my question is, so if, if you look at that, why do we have this feeling that the, the being rich is bad? Uh, that's the American dream is to be rich. So how did the American dream now be evil? What, what happened there? Yeah, I mean, well, uh, it's a great question. Um, and I'll just put out a couple of thoughts. Um, one is, I wonder, and this really is a speculation, I wonder if we said, okay, um, is it really just being rich that, that is bad or is it that we're unequally rich? So if everybody were a billionaire, would that be okay? Um, or is it you're only allowed to be a billion you, you, or it's bad to be a billionaire if there are people who are poor at the same time? And if 
that second one is the case, then maybe that indicates that what we're really worried about, or what people are worried about, is the great inequality. Uh, that um, well, so that, that might that, be that might just go to envy, right? Well, that is one of the seven deadly sins, um, and probably for a reason as well. Um, so I think uh, you know that that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting speculation, but. Um, but the other part of your question, I think, is, um, is, is very interesting. And that is, you know, you mentioned before that it's the millennials who are driving places like Amazon. And, you know, they're the ones who are making these choices. You know, after all, shouldn't, that, you know, it's not the boomers or somebody else. But, um, and if they're making these choices, then that suggests that they're happy with the choices they make. I mean, here's one other thing I would mention. Um, I think a lot of people think that when people are making those free choices to patronize one business or another, um, they aren't authentically free choices. In other words, they're being manipulated into those choices mm -hmm. by marketing, by you know the capitalists, by the business people. They're being um, talked into believing that those things are actually good for them when they really aren't good for them. So they're not actually. So it looks like a free choice. Nobody's putting a gun to their head. But on the other hand, their preferences and their desires have been so manipulated by the, a commercial society or by the by business interests that they're not authentically free choices. And I think that might be part of what's going on behind some of the objections as well, that, okay, sure, the millennials are buying those things, but what they don't know is that those things aren't actually good for them. Um, and so what we need to do is to, inter we who know what actually is good for people, we need to intervene and steer the choices in the right kinds of directions. Right, so we know better than you, so we should make the choices for you. So that, that's basically it. So, so let me end with this. Uh, what are some practical things, maybe two or three practical things that people can do, given this divisiveness, given, you know, given this, this move, half the world, half the country towards socialism, the other half uh, rebelling against socialism? Um, what can people actually do about it? Well, I'd say, I mean, you know, I'm a professor, so I'm speaking from my, uh, you know, my little corner of the world where I'm, you know, not actually creating wealth. I'm just talking about people who create wealth. One thing I would say is to uh, begin with uh, with shared principles. So, whether you agree, whether you want to redistribute wealth or not, um, I think we would everybody would agree that you have to have wealth in order to re redistribute it. So, if there isn't any wealth, then it doesn't matter what the principle of distribution is anymore because there isn't anything to distribute. You know, you can't divide zero. So, what we what we should where we should be first think about is what are the institutions that actually enable the creation of prosperity and including the increasing creation of prosperity. And what we don't wanna do, whatever else, whatever our policies are, what we don't wanna do is endanger that. Um, we don't want to kill the, the goose that lays the golden egg. So it's not just about who gets the egg, it's also about the goose. And we want more than one goose, we want lots of geese. Um, and that's something that I think that we can, that can cut across political division that yes, we do need to have increasing prosperity um, and there are lots of ways to go back to your very first point. Um, human beings do respond to incentives. And if you punish them for creating things or make the cost of producing or creating so great that people just say, ah, it's not worth it. It doesn't have to be everybody all at once, but at the margin, the more and more people that you raise the cost for doing that, they're just gonna shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, it's not really worth it. Um, and we're seeing this in things like people, you know, the, the decreasing um, workforce. At the margins, you're seeing people saying, yeah, I'm not sure it's really worth it. That's a very dangerous um, trajectory to uh, pushing out into the future. And so I think the first way to start is by saying we want increasing prosperity that raises everybody's opportunities and prosperity for everybody. I like it. So, so start with the shared that. principles. 
Yes. Right. Got it. Right. Anything else? Don't forget about opportunity costs. No matter what you decide to do before okay. you know that you're going to, it's a good thing to do. You got to think about what you're giving up. Every decision has an opportunity. Cost. I, I love that. That's, that's so important when you're talking about business, investing, taxes even, is that you are giving something up um, anytime you make a choice. It's you have to decide, you right. know, is what I'm getting uh, more valuable than what I'm giving up which I think right. is part of the education. So I, I love that. So uh, Dr. James Audison, Seven Deadly Economic Sins. I love the title of the book. I, I, I love <laughs> this. You. I love this discussion. Jim, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, remember, this is a show about, uh, you know, what's going on in the world and why and what, what we can actually do about it. I love, I love Jim. I love your idea. We need to start with shared principles. Everybody, I think everybody believes that um, we want people to have enough and we want people to have a standard of living. I, I don't think there's any real disagreement there. So um, we can start there. We can build from that. Um, and uh, I, I think we can get more education and, and really share the education. Because I, I, I continue to believe this is not a wealth inequality issue. It's not an income inequality issue. It's an education inequality issue. And the more education we get, what we always end up with is way more money and way less taxes. We'll see you next time. Thanks. You've been listening to The Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.